ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Jonathan Webb and I'm thrilled to be introducing this year's Boyer Lectures on Gadigal Country in Sydney. For 64 years now, the ABC has invited a distinguished Australian to inspire and challenge us with a series of four lectures. In 2023, our lecturer is Professor Michelle Simmons. A scientific trailblazer, an Australian of the Year and a newly minted winner of the Prime Minister's Prize for Science, Professor Simmons works on quantum computing. This tantalising idea of an unbelievably fast computer whose components work at the level of quantum mechanics is one of those frontiers that always seems to be five or ten years away. But if you listen to these lectures, you'll hear that the revolution is already happening and that if we play our cards right, Australia is incredibly well positioned to make the most of it. One of the people we have to thank for that is Michelle Simmons. Here is her first Boyer Lecture, The Atomic Revolution. In the Science Museum in London, there is part of a 19th century mechanical calculating machine termed the analytical engine, dreamed up by the British computing pioneer Charles Babbage. Made of brass, bronze, steel and wood, it looks like a component from a weaver's loom, hocked from an old textile factory. It certainly doesn't look anything like a modern-day computer, and, at roughly a metre cubed, and this was only a trial piece for a much larger machine, it is a quaint reminder not only of how far we've come, but also of how our technologies scale over time. There is an even more fascinating computer in the Science Works Museum in Melbourne. This is the famous CIRAC computer, built by Trevor Piercy and his Australian team in the 1940s. This computer was state-of-the-art in its day, made using 2,000 vacuum tubes, that period's version of our modern transistors, each big enough to hold in your hand, and stacked together in banks, the machine filled an entire room. And I know I'm not the first to point out the contrast with our modern calculating machines, but it is astonishing in comparison to think that the current Apple M1 Max chip, manufactured by TSMC, manages to fit 57 billion transistors onto one slither of an object about the size of an after-dinner mint. Computers are not the only technology that has shrunk over time. The first motors were enormous. Big, bulky, steam-powered machines, originally designed to pump water out of mines. Now you can find miniature electronic motors all over the place. Refrigerators, dishwashers, vacuum cleaners, cameras, and of course, in an ever-expanding range of transportation technologies. The first mechanical clocks were also rather grand and expensive, so much so that the earliest mechanical chronometers were only ever to be found in significant public places like churches, cathedrals, and town halls. Today, anyone can buy a watch, and our whole world has become synchronized as a result. Or think about printers. Gutenberg's printing press was twice as high as a man, larger than a grand piano and arduous to use. Yet now you can pick up an efficient laser printer from Officeworks that you can carry in both hands. The miniaturization of computing then is not an entirely unique story. 
One of the ways humans can enhance any technology is to try to miniaturize it. It is not uncommon that, having made something smaller, we find new uses for it, which end up transforming society in unanticipated ways. The story of computing is unique, however, in scale, if not in kind. And I say this not just because of the stark comparison that might be drawn between Charles Babbage's effort and the iPhone, or between the CIRAC of the late 1940s and the wild multitude of conveniently sized and extremely powerful computing devices we all have at our disposal today. What sets computing apart from other technologies that we have miniaturized is the speed and the scale of miniaturization. And the unbelievable fact, as I will explain, that we have now brought this particular process to its ultimate limit, whereby the core features of our computing machinery can be reduced to the size of individual atoms. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of how this happened and why it matters. It is a story that links fundamental physics, extraordinary technological advancements, and the future of computing. It is also largely an Australian story. And it starts with two things you may not often hear about on the radio. The transistor and the atom. The foundation of all modern computers is the transistor, which was invented back in 1947. That probably feels like a long time ago, but in historical terms it is very recent. Indeed, it is remarkable to think that throughout the most of human history, there was no such thing as a transistor. Yet the transistor has become the core calculating component at the heart of every computer, mobile phone, and smart device on the planet. Transistors are electronic devices that act as switches, embodying the ones and zeros of the digital age. They increasingly run the world. Microprocessors contain billions of transistors, and most of us use trillions every day without giving it a moment's thought. These are the elemental gears that run our digital economy. They are all pervasive, inescapable even, in the modern world. Yet they are now also so small as to be imperceptible. The person whose name will forever be associated with the process of miniaturization in computing is Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel. He's the one who first noted that the number of transistors on a microchip was roughly doubling every 18 months to two years, which essentially meant that transistors were halving in size over the same time frame. Moore published his data in the 1960s and projected the rate of growth into the future, observing that if any semiconductor company wanted to remain competitive over time, it would have to keep cramming more and more transistors into less and less space. In doing so, he set a standard known as Moore's Law that the entire industry strove for, and turned what was then just an observation of a few years of data into a self-fulfilling prophecy that has spanned decades. In the late 1990s, when I was working in the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, and considering migrating to Australia, I remember looking at this data and wondering about the forward projection. Back then, judging by the speed at which the semiconductor industry was innovating, it looked as if it would only be about 20 years, i.e. the early 2020s, when we would be working at the atomic scale. To understand what a breathtaking thought this was, and why I found it such an exciting prospect, 
you should know something more about the atom. The first person that we know of to speculate about the existence of atoms was the Greek philosopher Democritus. In 460 BC, he asked a simple question. If you break something in half, and then in half again, how small would the pieces eventually become? He theorised that at some point you would end up with the smallest part of matter, which he called the atom. Unfortunately for Democritus, experimental science was not particularly advanced in 460 BC. And, to make matters worse, Aristotle, who was much more influential as a philosopher, didn't like the theory, so no one paid much attention to the idea for about 2,000 years. The atom is not the smallest unit of nature, for atoms themselves are made up of electrons, protons and neutrons. But atoms are nature's building blocks. All the material that surrounds us, including the earth on which we walk, the food we eat, and our very own bodies are composed of atoms. And if most humans in history have had no concept of their existence, this is hardly surprising, because atoms are unimaginably small. A single atom is about 10 billionths of a metre, or about 50,000 times smaller than the width of a human hair. It should not surprise you then to know that, even in the late 90s, the idea of making transistors and other electronic devices with components made of individual atoms seemed a little far-fetched. In those days, despite the 20-year predictions from Moore's law, there was no known technology for making things on such a scale. But I was keen on the idea. To make electronic devices out of individual atoms, that was something almost unimaginable. An idea truly at the forefront of possibility. And I like that. Not just because I like a challenge, but because in science, it is at the frontiers that the greatest discoveries are made. At the Cavendish, I was already trying to see if I could make the fastest, most perfect transistors. However, I found that as these devices got smaller and smaller, they became harder and harder to reproduce. I liken it to a sculptor trying to make an exquisitely carved statue. The tools we were using to make these devices, tools that were even more advanced than the semiconductor industry was using, were still just too blunt. Working at the atomic scale meant forging a different path. It meant doing something that no one else had ever done before. In some ways, back then, it was like saying you were going to walk on the moon. It also meant accessing the quantum world, the mysterious world of the very small, where the laws of nature take on completely counterintuitive and wonderfully powerful properties. But how to manage it? Fortunately, a new kind of microscope had been invented in the 1980s, the scanning tunneling microscope, which allowed us for the first time to see individual atoms. This microscope works by bringing a very fine metal tip down to a surface under vacuum. When it gets close to the surface, a tiny current begins to flow from the tip to the atoms. Electrons essentially tunnel from the tip to the atom, hence the term tunneling microscope. If we scan this tip across the atoms, keeping the current constant, 
we essentially get a height profile of the atoms on the surface. Using this microscope for the first time, it became possible to build up a three-dimensional image of all the atoms on the surface. This is an awe-inspiring tool, and widely recognized as such. The scanning tunneling microscope was one of the fastest discoveries ever to win the Nobel Prize, receiving the award in 1984, just four years after it was invented. But it turned out to be possible to go a step further. In 1990, IBM researchers in Switzerland tried something highly imaginative. Instead of just using this very special microscope to look at atoms on a surface, they applied voltages to pick atoms up and move them around, famously arranging 35 atoms on a metal surface to spell IBM, making the world's smallest logo. This was the idea that captured my imagination. But it was a long way from being a perfected tool. For whilst it was easy enough to use this microscope to pick up the atoms on a metal surface, it is a very different thing to manipulate atoms inside a semiconductor crystal, where the chemical bonding presents a far stronger impediment. Nevertheless, I'd seen some recent papers of how this might be done and had some ideas of my own. In 1999, I decided I would come to Australia and see if I could adapt this imaging and manipulation tool to build electronic devices in silicon at the atomic scale. Rather than making devices smaller and smaller each year as industry was doing, I was determined to leapfrog Moore's law and to push straight for the endpoint to make devices with atomic precision. Now, at that time, conventional transistors were being made with feature sizes of 200 nanometers, which is equivalent to about a thousand atoms across. And every integrated circuit was being made up from a complex mixture of atoms with elements from nearly two thirds of the periodic table, from silicon to aluminum, tungsten, copper, and many complex oxides. My plan was to build functional devices in silicon at the atomic scale, so a thousand times smaller, and made out of just two elements, silicon and phosphorus. We knew that the scanning tunneling microscope wasn't going to be enough to do this on its own. I knew, and the wider team at UNSW knew, that we had to combine it with another technology, a tool that allowed us to grow perfect crystals of silicon one atomic layer at a time. Yet here's the catch. Up until that point, no one had ever combined these two different technologies. Both had to operate under ultra-high vacuum, the same type of vacuum you find in out of space. But one, the microscope, needed extremely high stability, while the other, the crystal growth tool, used powerful pumps that vibrated almost like a washing machine. They seemed fundamentally incompatible. The consensus view within the scientific community was the chances of combining these two technologies was near impossible. And even if we succeeded on that front, it was pointed out there would be other significant technical challenges to overcome. Indeed, eight major technical impediments were identified, none of which had been realized before. Even the senior scientists at IBM were skeptical. But we were in Australia, the land of the give-it-a-go attitude. And so, despite the critics, we did it anyway. By 2010, we made what was then the world's smallest transistor, 
a device constructed out of just seven phosphorus atoms. In addition to being published in the usual scientific places, this achievement made it into the Guinness Book of World Records, as my son discovered one day to his astonishment while sitting in his school library. Then, in 2011, we showed we could pattern a wire just one atom high and four atoms wide. We discovered, much to our surprise, and against all theoretical predictions, that it could carry current much as if it had been made of copper. Then, in 2012, we made a transistor where the active part of the device was just a single phosphorus atom, beating those old industry predictions from Moore's law by nearly a decade. Indeed, Moore's law has slowed, so the semiconductor industry, even today, has yet to reach this limit. It took us a long time to figure out how to do all this. And to make it happen, we drew on talent from all over the world. In addition to our Australian base, I was fortunate to have great people from many different countries come to help. From Germany, England, Switzerland, the US, Poland, the Netherlands, Singapore, China, Israel, South Korea and New Zealand, among other places. Even so, it took us 10 years of sustained and systematic problem solving. And of course, we're still refining things. But the approach now is proven, and our laboratories at UNSW and the Sydney manufacturing facilities of our company, Silicon Quantum Computing, now make electronic devices reproducibly at the atomic scale as a matter of routine. Most recently, in 2022, thanks to the efforts of an exceptionally talented team, we reported the creation of the world's first integrated circuit made with atomic precision. An integrated circuit essentially combines multiple device components, such as transistors, onto one integrated chip. We have done this with input and output leads and control gates all constructed at the atomic scale out of phosphorus and silicon atoms using our atomic manufacturing process. This incredible piece of engineering came roughly 10 years after we reported designing, engineering and measuring our single atom transistor which, curiously, is about the same time it took classical computing to get from the invention of the transistor in 1947 to the creation of the first integrated circuit in 1958. In fact, we've gone beyond the atomic scale. Electrons are subatomic particles that exist on the surface of atoms. They are the fundamental particles that form the physical basis of electricity. I had always believed that if we could control the world with atomic precision, then it would be possible also to manipulate the quantum properties of individual electrons. And in our devices, we can. We can control the movement of individual electrons on and off individual atoms. We can also measure and control the spin properties of these electrons within our devices. The spin of an electron is a property of quantum physics in which an electron particle acts like a tiny bar magnet. In other words, we now have access to the quantum world. It is my belief that these collective attainments represent the dawn of something truly important. By developing tools to see, organize, control and measure information using individual atoms, I and those I've worked with have aspired to open a new frontier in electronics 
one based upon the intricate control of nature's fundamentals, in which the specific placement of every atom counts. But we've always been aware of a deeper implication, because atoms and their electrons are extremely small and possess quantum properties. Our invention of atomic assembly raises the potential for making a completely new and powerful kind of computer. A quantum computer. A quantum computer is a type of computer that exploits the laws of quantum physics, so that instead of performing calculations sequentially like a conventional computer, it works according to an extreme parallelism, looking at many possible outcomes at the same time and leading to an exponential speed-up in computational power. Quantum computers have the potential to transform nearly every industry from finance and cryptography to transportation, logistics, machine learning, and even drug design. Little wonder then that today there is an international race to build a quantum computer, and that the leading nations of the world are investing billions in what has been nicknamed the space race of the computing era. The promise of quantum computing is the subject of my second lecture. But for now, let me say this. Our ability at UNSW to make electronic devices at the level of single atoms has given us a unique opportunity to build a quantum computer here in Australia. We have figured out how to control the placement of individual atoms, the movement of electrons on and off individual atoms, and the spin states of electrons within quantum electronic devices. Australia is at the very forefront of this field, leading the way and backed by a strong patent portfolio. Even today, despite well-funded efforts in other countries, no one else in the world has been able to replicate our process. With the visionary backing of the Australian government, the Commonwealth Bank, Telstra, the New South Wales government, and the University of New South Wales, my team and I are now on a mission to use our atomic assembly technology to build a complete prototype quantum computer for which all the functional elements are manufactured and controlled at the atomic scale. This is not a research project, it is a commercial enterprise. Current estimates suggest that 40% of our economy has the potential to be impacted by quantum computing, and that the global quantum computing opportunity could be worth $150 billion per annum by 2040. To make this work, we have spun a commercial company out of the University of New South Wales called Silicon Quantum Computing. It is an ambitious and entrepreneurial undertaking to scale up what we've done to date, to take all the advantages from 20 years of world-leading Australian research in order to manufacture a new kind of product with the potential to create enormous wealth here in Australia. To find out about that quantum promise, you'll have to tune in next time. But before I leave you, I want to ask one final question. What I've described to you today started out a quarter of a century ago as frontier science, a project to test the bounds of what was technically possible. And we've delivered. Like those who invented the first transistor or the integrated circuit, we have demonstrated a completely new way of doing things. We have shown that it is humanly possible to manipulate atoms into working atomic-scale devices. But this isn't just an esoteric accomplishment. It has also given us a novel 
an extremely powerful manufacturing capability with clear utility and a clear pathway for making a quantum computer. The question is, can we keep a capability like this in Australia? It is sometimes said that we can't manufacture things in this country, that the economics are too difficult. And for certain kinds of products, maybe that's true. Even if Australians had invented the transistor, for example, I'm not sure the technology would have stayed here for very long. In a world without the internet, manufacturers benefited from being close to their customers. And geographically speaking, Australia is an isolated country. And even if that weren't the case, the country would have lacked the specialized workforce needed. But atomic manufacturing is different. And not just because we have a technological lead to begin with, or because we hold key patents and know-how, or because the rest of the world has not been able to catch us. There are other reasons too for expecting that this is a technology that can be industrialized here in Australia. The goal of our company, Silicon Quantum Computing, is to use the fundamental breakthroughs of our atomic revolution, in other words, atomic manufacturing, to build and operate the most precise and highest quality quantum computers. An early error-corrected quantum computer will be an extraordinarily powerful, but also a highly specialized product, manufactured in low volume and at very high margins. Something that does not require the economies of scale of a mass market consumer product. It is also likely that users will access quantum computing as a service via the cloud, rather than owning their own hardware directly. The internet has now eroded the old tyranny of distance. And we have the specialized workforce we need. With more than two decades of center of excellence funding from the Australian Research Council, our country's burgeoning quantum startup sector has already attracted a sizable workforce with the ingenuity and skills we need to make this happen. For all these reasons, I believe that this is a technology we can exploit from Australia for Australia. And I'd like to hope that other Australians might share this mindset. It is odd that we ourselves should be made of atoms and that all the matter we deal with every day is made of atoms. Yet nearly all the humans who've ever existed have not had the slightest notion of these facts. It's only in the last few decades that we've been able to see individual atoms through a microscope. And now we are creating devices at this scale, a scale we didn't know existed for much of human history. Miniaturization has driven technology and in this country, our researchers have taken it to its extreme limit. We have turned this ability from a lab exercise into a reproducible manufacturing process. And we are now trying to use that manufacturing capability to make computers of extraordinary power. If we succeed in this last step, and in my next lecture, I will explain why I think we will, at the heart of our machines will be components as invisible to the world as the atoms they are made from. Yet they will also prove more consequential than any computer built thus far. Indeed, if we succeed in this last step, everything I've told you today will just be the beginning. 
That was The Atomic Revolution, Michelle Simmons' first of four Boyer lectures. You can watch the televised lecture on ABC iview. In Professor Simmons' second lecture, she'll be looking at the quantum promise and how Australia is poised to build the world's first error-corrected quantum computer. I'm Jonathan Webb. Thanks for listening. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.